Well, good morning, Anchorage Grace. I love to greet God's people and greetings from uh, Grace, Los Angeles, or Los Angeles Grace, if I put it in the right order. Um, really excited to be here. This is uh, my first time in the state of Alaska. Uh, actually flew in Friday, so that was the first time I put my feet on the ground. First time I've had the opportunity to enjoy the beauty of your state. And yesterday was a gift to me. If it wasn't to you, it was to me. The, uh, the foliage, the color, um, Pete Johnson and Brian Laker took me around, so I got a bird's-eye view of what you get to enjoy, I'm sure, often. Um, I'm not convinced yesterday's weather is the way it always is, however. <laughs> but I would be tempted, if I could believe that that was normative, Harry and Karen would be heading north. Uh, but uh, we're, we're, I'm grateful to be here, and I do bring you sincere greetings from the Master's University and Seminary. Uh, I do have the privilege of serving there. People ask me, what is a campus pastor? You're not a church, are you? No, we are not a church. Uh, we serve the local church. We educate and equip to the end that there are God glorifiers and kingdom influencers, not just in pastoral ministry, but in every facet of life. Our goal is young men and women, wherever they are, to be agents of influence to the end that God is elevated and people are influenced for the gospel, for Christ. And excellence in education uh, is, is important in terms of training. Um, and I tell parents who entrust us with their children, they're going to pay for an education that is governed and guided by the truth. And let me tell you what that is, rare. Um, most of us think of education as getting the certificates needed or the degrees needed to get a job. I'm going to argue that what education should be is not just to prepare you for vocation, but to prepare you for life. Um, and uh, I, I studied at Brown University once upon a time and played college football there. And I can tell you, highly prestigious education but not so helpful in terms of growing up in life. Might get me a job, but wouldn't prepare me in ways that are most important. And, uh, you know, I uh, absolutely believe, and I, as Jeff said, uh, I pastored a church with a Christian school, K-3 through 12, and I understand and value at a homeschool cover group of a couple of a hundred, so I understand Christian education. I value it. I appreciate parents who invest in it. Because you know it's the most valuable investment you can make in your children is to cultivate a truth-based worldview. This Bible is the record of reality. This is the way it is. It possesses houses and for our blessing and benefit provides us with the truth. And the truth matters in every single category, not just on Sunday mornings, but in everything we do. So training your children in the truth matters. But I also like to say that's a worthy investment. That's a rare investment. Some of you are making that investment, and I applaud you for that. But if you're ever going to make an investment in Christian education, it ought to be when your children leave your home and the influence of your church, where they're going to establish convictions of their own. You do know that when they leave you, you have sown and cultivated convictions in their life, but it doesn't make them their convictions. Their convictions will become their convictions when they're outside of your influence, when they become what I'm going to call freestanding moral agents, where their convictions are their own. And you want that to happen, and this is my conviction to you, you want that to happen in a place that supports what you've given your life to invest. You don't want to put your children at 18 to 22 or a little younger or a little older in a position where people of perceived credibility will undermine the convictions of the truth that you've invested so much in. Nothing is more valuable than your children. And there's nothing more joyful than to know that your children walk in the truth. And an 18 to 22-year-old doesn't know what they don't know. And to put them in a culture that is overtly adversarial. You understand that secular education does not believe the Bible's true. 
They do not believe that you can know truth, even if there exists the truth. And to have any idea that there's authority or that someone knows what is and can say it with clarity is an alien thought in secular education. And you want to put your children in a place, if you're going to invest, I'm just encouraging you to think about making sure you invest in what happens after they leave your home. Because I'm going to argue, I went to a secular university and I didn't crash and burn, but they didn't help me advance. I advanced in spite of that. So it can happen. It's just more often than not, and I'm a pastor. Um, I serve as an elder at Grace Community Church. I pastor a fellowship group on Sunday mornings. I serve with young people. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've watched heartache after heartache after heartache, parents thinking they've finished their investing work. They've laid the groundwork for their children, and they have. But children are then influenced adversely by those who have perceived credibility that know nothing of Christ, care nothing of Christ, and actually mock perceptions that relate to Christ. So I say that to you because I believe in Christian education, and I believe in Christian college education. And I believe in Christian college education that is grounded in the Word of God completely, with no compromise. Because something worse than a secular institution, it's a quasi-Christian one. Because a quasi-Christian one implies I can trust you. And if you, in a position of trust, undermine the truth, you do great damage to me, and I'm not even alert to the fact that you're doing it. So be careful when you choose. Choose wisely. And I'm making one last statement about that, because this is not a sermon, but it is an encouragement. And it's really coming from a pastor. I'm employed, but that's not why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I love Christian parents, I love Christian families, and it really matters to me what happens to Christian young people. And uh, what you get, Lord willing, when you send your child to a Christian education institution, certainly like ours, and Jeff and I experienced this together and a number of you. And by the way, the Overhausers, they're a part of my fellowship at Grace. Brian and Elizabeth sit in front of me when they're in town. Uh, They're a part of my community. You're going to get a rich treasure in what Dr. MacArthur just said, you you may not know it, but you've just raised the potential and the elevation of your church in terms of the richness that will come through having training like that and individuals. uh, I know Pete and Steve are gifted, but you're going to watch some transformations, and I know their wives are rooting for them. And uh, I don't don't mean transformation like that part. I mean just rooting for them. Old men going to school, that's an interesting thing. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, what you have is the opportunity to grow, and what we offer in a Christian educational setting is what I'm going to call priceless, things you can't pay for. And this goes back to my introduction of what a campus pastor is. We have a plethora of people, from the cafeteria to the gym, from the classroom to the dorm room, that aren't there for the money. They're there to advance the mission of the gospel in the life of young people. And I'm one of those people. I have no authority and no boundaries. My privilege is to support people with authority, parents, pastors, churches, faculty, staff, coaches, to the end that your young people, if you send them our way, or somebody's young person, will be influenced for the cause that's eternal. Christian education matters. This church understands that. And I hope you do. Invest in things that matter. That's my encouragement to you. I'm excited to be here. I didn't come to recruit anybody or anything. I came here to encourage you to think in ways that, unfortunately, many parents don't think. They'll invest in every kind of thing. But the most important thing sometimes we miss. Take your Bible. Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um. I've so enjoyed your church family already, your men that I had the privilege of serving and interacting with yesterday, your elders this morning in prayer time. It's a beautiful thing to watch as a pastor of churches, and I I teach a seminary class on the practice of pastoral ministry. It's a great thing to see elders and pastors gather 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, a big day in the life of the church, and open that day by praying for you. That's a gift to you, 
and that's an encouragement to me. So I've enjoyed being here, and I hope that we'll enjoy this time together as we look at God's Word. Now, just a brief statement about what we're about to do. I'm going to try to do two passages in one Sunday morning. And uh, I, I know that's ambitious, but I really want you to taste something that I think is very, very important for you to own by way of a personal conviction. Two out of ten Christians own this conviction. Eight out of ten Christians don't own this conviction. Recent study was done in evangelical Christianity, a substantive study. How many of you own this as your personal responsibility? Two out of ten. What we're about to talk about this morning is what most Christians don't do that matters most to God and to men that they do do. There's something really important to heaven that's a priority in your life. And there's an absolute need and priority for you to do this in the life of those with whom you have to do. Family, friends, neighbors, Anchorage, or wherever you call home. And that priority is summed up in recognition of why Jesus Christ said he came. I came. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give myself as a ransom for many, sacrificially. I came to seek and to save what was lost. And before he ascended to heaven, he met with his disciples and said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on the earth. And with that authority, I commission you, my disciples, representative of all disciples who know Christ, who've come to Him by faith, I am commissioning you, I am imploring you, I am commanding you, go, temporal participle, while you are going through life, main verb, make disciples. Instrumental participle, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you. I came to seek and save what was lost. I'm commissioning you by my divine authority over you. And it is an encouragement to you. This is not a futile effort. When you go, as you traffic in life. I want you to make disciples. I want you to be a gospel influence to the end that people not only profess him, but they're baptized publicly as a testimony to their faith in him. I want you to disciple them and instruct them and teach them. I want you to grow them so that they become what God built and saved them to be. And listen, lo, which is a way of saying, hey, listen to this. I'm with you all the way to the end of the age because Jesus Christ is still a missionary. He is still seeking to save what is lost. And he wants to use you. And two out of ten of us bear witness to the fact, I own that. I own that. I'm a missionary. I'm a seeker. I'm an per- intentional pursuer. My sermon today is called Running to Win. Prioritizing, promoting, and protecting gospel influence. I want to do three things today, and we're going to move quickly. These are highlights. But I want to challenge you today, brother to brothers and sisters, pastor to a local church, I want to challenge you, number one, to adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. To adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. 
Number two, to employ a gospel-winning mentality. Three, to avoid forfeiting gospel opportunity. This is about gospel influence, adopting it as your personal priority. I'm confident Anchorage Grace has a gospel priority. But I'm also confident that individuals who claim this as their church and home do not own that for themselves individually. And this is an individual call to gospel influence. Not a church corporate call, but your call. That's my challenge for you today. Track with me. We're going to begin to read in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9. Now, contextually, Paul is arguing, I have rights. I'm an apostle. I'm an investor. As a seed sower in the kingdom of God, I have rights. I have privilege. I, I should be supported by you. You should care for me. I should enjoy blessing because I'm blessing you in the truth. I have rights. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things, and it might be done. So in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Verse 18. What then is my reward? I'm forfeiting my rights. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now let me just summarize the first part of this chapter. I have rights, but I'm forfeiting those rights for greater influence. I don't want there to be any obstacle to my influence for the gospel on you. I don't want you to accuse me of being a taker instead of a giver, a manipulator, impure, somehow sullied by carnal ambition. I have the right. It's a logical right. It's a biblical right. But I'm exchanging that right because there's a greater thing that I seek to be the maximized gospel influencer that I can possibly be. I'm trading a lot for something more. This is why I do what I do. Now watch what he says in verse 19. The call to adopt a gospel lifestyle priority comes out of Paul's testimony. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men. In other words, I'm not encumbered. I don't owe them anything. They're not giving me anything. Even though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. I have submitted myself, I've surrendered myself to serve all, that I might win the more. And you're going to see this word win repeated, and it has a context. Verse 20, and to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now look up for a minute. Let me tell you what he just said. I'm, I'm trading everything that I have a right to in order to do something more important. And that important thing is to enslave myself to the priority of winning some to the cause of Christ through the gospel of Christ. And I am adopting a gospel lifestyle priority that says, I'm going to communicate and connect to every kind of person without compromise to the end that they can hear the good news of God. To the Jew, I'm going to accommodate. I'm not going to offend and create an unnecessary hindrance. And you see this in the book of Acts in chapter 16 where he takes Timothy who's mother was a Jewish woman, 
His father was a Greek, and he had Timothy circumcised so that when Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, would not be considered a hindrance or an obstacle to Jews because he was circumcised according to the law. Now, the circumcision didn't save him. The circumcision wasn't a compromise of the gospel. It was a concession to removing a barrier to the gospel because Timothy was a Jew. So he culturally adjusted, not compromising. You know that's true because in Titus, or or Titus in Galatians chapter 2, and you can look at it later, Paul said, Titus, who's a Greek, not Jew, Greek, Greek. Titus is not going to be circumcised. Because if Titus were circumcised, remember the issue in Galatians, do you have to keep the law to be saved? No, you don't have to keep the law to be saved. There were Judaizers who said you did. Paul said, no, you don't. He confronted Peter to his face because he was compromising. Titus was not circumcised because it would have compromised the mission of the gospel, which is why you see Paul say in verse 21, to those who are without law, the Greeks, as without law, though not being without the law of God. So I'm not going to compromise moral law, but I am going to not comply with Jewish law because Jewish law isn't the gospel. My whole life is about this. To the Jew, compromise, no. Connect and communicate, absolutely. To the Greek, compromise, no. Connect and communicate, absolutely. I'm a slave to that priority. I've enslaved myself to them. It goes on to say, verse 21, though not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That's the law of love. So you have the moral law, the holiness law of God, and the royal law of love, charity and morality. I'm going to maintain that. No compromise, but also no hindrance. Verse, and he did that, he says in verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. Win to what? The gospel. Verse 22, to the weak. I became weak. Weak in what way? Weak in station of life. Weak perhaps in emotion. Weak in terms of maybe condition or conviction. Weak. I was a sympathizer to their need and their situation. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means not win some, but he defines what winning is, save some. My whole life is about the gospel. Now, you could argue, well, of course, he's an apostle. He's been set apart by Jesus Christ to promote and proclaim the gospel. Here's what I want you to understand. So have you. So have I. In this case, Paul is an example of what every Christian is to be. And you know that because of what he begins to say in the next verse. Well, let me read 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker in it. Now, this is interesting. He's about to say, the reason I do this is because the unrivaled treasure that comes when I get to participate in the most significant transaction any human being will have. I get to share in it. I become a partaker of the treasure of a divine transaction, a supernatural transformation. Listen, it's new birth, physical birth. That's an awesome thing. When a baby's born, it's a miracle. But there's a greater miracle, and that's when a dead person is resurrected spiritually and they become a new creation. One's temporal, physical life. One's eternal, spiritual life. Paul said, I I do everything because I get the fact that when I share in somebody's supernatural born-again experience, when I see somebody one to Christ, their life changes not just physically, supernaturally, spiritually, eternally. Here's a conviction every Christian needs to own. 
the greatest blessing you will ever enjoy is being an agent of gospel influence in the life of another human being. 95% of Christians never do that. Two out of ten say, I don't even know that that's my responsibility, and I'm certainly not pursuing it. It was his responsibility or his, his passion and priority. Wouldn't you agree with me it ought to be ours? And isn't it also true that if it's so clear biblically, both in the statements of Christ and the example of Paul, shouldn't we consider adopting gospel lifestyle priority for ourselves? To say, you know what? I'm going to make myself a slave to that pursuit. Everything I do is going to have an eye to the good news that somebody needs it and will get to hear it, and I'm an agent to communicate it. Adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. Verse 24, employ a gospel winning mentality. Now, if you buy into that and listen to Paul turn from, this is what motivates me, the priority of my life, I'm going to call you to something. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Listen, racing is not about running. I know we're big in our culture with participation awards. You know, the reward is for being a part of the race or game or competition. It wasn't true when this was written. It was all about winning. Everybody runs, everybody's participating, but there's only one winner and there's only one recipient of the prize. You know what the prize was? Lifelong honor. Athletes spent 10 months in training for competition. They would leave their home and their family... They would be be given a rigorous diet. They would be denied normative privileges. They would sacrifice time and privilege so that they could compete, but not just to compete, but to win. And when and if they won, they were gifted with a wreath And a label for life. Victor. Winner. They were honored at every successive games. Their family enjoyed benefit because they won. They would sit in a prestigious VIP section. The town they came from would enjoy benefit. They would enjoy privilege from the emperor because... Living and housed in that town was a winner. It mattered whether you ran and won, not just ran. So when Paul wrote this, here's an imperative of command. It's in the aorist tense, which means do this and do it now. It's urgent. You get nothing for running. You get something for winning. Run in such a way that you may win. Here's a gospel-winning mentality. I'm going to give you five quick things this morning. Number one, resolve determination. That's a decision that says, I'm not just in the game. I'm running to win the game. I'm not just sharing my faith. I'm determined that the sharing of my faith will have an impact so that unsaved people are one to Christ. I've resolved. I've made up my mind. I'm not just playing I've decided this is a resolution, a resolved determination. This is a desire. This is what I'm about. And when I get up tomorrow morning, this is my conviction. I'm going to work resolved and determined that I'm not just running in the gospel race. I'm going to win that race to the end that some neighbor, some friend, some family member enjoys the life that I enjoy. Verse 25, what else does it require? 
rigorous discipline. I already hinted at it, verse 25, and everyone who competes in the games, the word compete is agonizomai. You hear agony in that? This is rigorous. This is effort. Everybody who competes in the games works really hard. That's the point. There's things they rigorously, discipline-wise, commit themselves to. We would call it training. Do you know LeBron James, who some argue is the greatest basketball player in the world, and I'm not wanting to have that debate. I just know that some make that claim. I could see why they could. By the way, he's a Los Angeles Laker now, (laughs) for which we are truly excited. He spends $1.5 million every year on training. LeBron James has an advisor, a biomechanic, former naval SEAL, coaching him. He has a recovery coach. He has a personal chef. He has a masseuse. He has a full gym. He has an ice tub, hot tub, and a hyperbaric chamber. million a year because he's not just in it to play. He's in it to win it. And he's not only in it to win it once. He's in, in it to win it more than anybody else wins it because he wants to be the best he can be. You know what that is? Commitment. I don't care what else you want to say is. That's putting your money where your mouth is. That's saying, you know what? This matters to me. I'm willing to invest in it. I'm willing to train hard. If you watch any of his training videos on YouTube, it hurts just to watch. Michael Phelps, who may have been the greatest Olympic swimmer ever, six hours a day, six days a week in the pool, 50 miles a week he swam. He did hardly anything while he was in Olympic training. People who know the medal matters. Look, I got to believe some of the athletes are just excited to get to the Olympic Games. But the goal of getting to the Olympic Games is to win the Olympic Games. That's what Paul's saying. You don't just run in this race. You're aiming at winning this race. And if you're going to win this race, those who compete, they agonize. There are things they do that other people don't do who aren't running to win. They sacrifice. They invest. Here's a question for you. If you're going to adopt a gospel lifestyle priority, you're going to have to employ a gospel-winning mentality, and that means you're going to have to own priorities that presently may not exist. You're going to have to read the Bible and memorize the Bible. You're going to have to pray for your neighbors. You're going to have to engage in apologetics. You're going to have to learn answers. You know, there's about three or four questions I always get asked. You can know the answers to those questions. Well, if God's so big and so good, why is the world to look the way it is? And what about those children in Africa or some foreign country that never hear about Jesus? There's about three or four questions that always come. Do you know the answers to those questions? If so, it'll take work for you to learn those answers. Rigorous training means I'm a gospel soul winner. I'm learning the truth. I'm learning to defend my faith. I'm doing so in a, whiz, uh, in a winsome way. I'm reading a book right now called Tactics by Greg Kukul. It's all about being a diplomat for Christ. Because a lot of times we approach people in a way that feels adversarial. And his whole book is arguing for, hey, we ought to be the best diplomats on the planet. We represent as ambassadors the king of everything. And we ought to not represent not only what he says, but how he would say it. Are you training? I think there's a conspiracy. You stop memorizing verses when you graduate from Awana. That is not true. You want to run to win, you're going to have to invest yourself in doing some things that others don't do who won't win. Secondly, there's things you choose against. This is what it says in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That's the negative side. That's self-control. That word means that you self-discipline by denying yourself. It's restraint. It's rigorous regimen 
and its resolved restrictions, its rigorous restraint, its self-control, its sacrifice. The word literally means you don't let anything run out of the boundaries. You're always self-controlled, disciplining yourself by choosing against things that undermine the main thing. If you want to be physically fit, you can't eat the way you used to eat or the way most folks eat. And by the way, you eat good in Alaska. I've enjoyed it. One helping's worth two meals. But listen, if you're going to run to win, you can't eat like everybody else. You can't take in what the culture takes in. Let me apply this to you. If you want to be a race winner, you're going to have to say no to things that undermine the faith you promote. There's things you're not going to do. There's places you're not going to go. There's things you're not going to compromise because you're chasing a greater priority. I am not a legalist. I'm not going to heaven because I conform to any kind of behavior pattern. But as a committed gospel influencer, there's places I do not go, things I do not see because there's something more important to me. That's what this is, self-control for a greater benefit. Discipline to give up the lesser, to gain the things that are greater. Athletes who succeed, do that. Christians who succeed, do that. Number three. Oh, by the way, uh, let's touch one more thing before we leave this verse. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I don't want you to miss that. No matter how much glory you get for winning the Olympic Games, it's temporal. No matter what these athletes received, and it was lifelong, it was temporal because it was lifelong. I've received awards. I don't even know where they are. Once upon a time, I was an athlete. Once upon a time, somebody awarded me something that says, you know, you know what, in the state of New Jersey, you're the best wide receiver in the state. Here's a picture. Here's a plaque. Here's a watch. The watch broke. The plaque, I have no idea where it is. It's temporary. It doesn't matter. It matters for the sake of this illustration because at that time it mattered. It just doesn't matter today. And whatever you gain by way of prestige and privilege in this life In the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is this, eternal reward, eternal consequence. Everyone who competes exercises rigorous discipline. Notice what it says in, well, let's just note the words everyone. No exceptions. All things, no exclusions. And it's important to think about. You can't compartmentalize your Christianity. I'm in or I'm not in. I'm running to win or I'm not running to win. It affects everything and everyone. The third thing necessary is what I'm going to call real direction. Resolve determination, rigorous discipline, and real direction. Look at what it says in verse 26. Therefore, because it's true that the wreath only goes and the imperishable one only goes to the winner. Verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. Adalas. I've got a clear goal. I've got direction. I know where I'm going. I've got targets. And the reason I use the word real because God hasn't made you the missionary to the world. He's made you to the missionary to your neighborhood, your family, your friends, your circle of influence. They're real people you have a real responsibility for. They have real names. They live at real addresses. They do real work. And they're in your world. Don't run without aim. If I'm going to win the lost, I need to aim at the lost. Not just any lost, my world of lost. Real direction says, I have goals. I've got identified people in my life. Here's a practical encouragement to you. Identify five neighbors. Let me qualify a neighbor. Somebody in your world, they may live next door. They may live in the blue house. 
They may work in the cubicle next to you. They may drive the truck in your company. They may serve with you at the local restaurant. Your peers, your neighbors, pick five of them. Identify them and say, you know what? I'm aiming. God's put them in my life. God's given me a heart for them. I'm going to do three things with them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to meet needs, care for them. And I am, God willing, intentionally going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to talk to him about them before I talk to them about him. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, First of all, let prayers and entreaties and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. You pray for those in authority. You pray that you can live a tranquil and peaceful life and all dignity and honor. This is what God finds acceptable. Do you know what the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is? Let me remind you what follows that declaration because I think it's important to recognize what God finds good and acceptable, praying for all men, especially those in authority, for this is why. This is the motivator. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The whole purpose of the vertical, first of all, praying, not just corporately but individually, is so that people will come to the truth. How many ways are there to heaven? One. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the alone solution to man's eternal need and situation. And he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher. And so were you. Because the word preacher is a proclaimer. It's a truth teller. I'm preaching today. This matters to me. I want it to matter to you. But preaching is proclaiming. Preaching is sharing truth. This matters to God. He desires it. He's appointed Christ as the mediator, the ransom, the solution for it. And he's entrusted that truth to you and to me. Real direction means I got real people I'm aiming at, and I'm praying. I'm blessing them every day in prayer. Bless is an acrostic. Pray for their physical life, their body, L, their labor, E, their emotional health, S, their social relationships, friends and family, unhealthy homes or unhealthy for anybody, and pray for their spiritual condition. Bless them. If Bob lives next door, God bless Bob. Help him physically, help him emotionally, help his work work in his life. May his marriage go well. May his relationships with his friends and family be healthy. God, open his heart to the gospel. Aim at that. And then he goes on to say, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Not only real direction, but what I'm going to call relevant design. Let me tell you why I say relevant. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26. I box in such a way as not beating the air. That's tactics. That's strategy. That's design. That's not just happenstance. It's just going through the motions. not just kind of going with the flow. No, I have a strategy. I don't just have a goal. I have a strategy. I've got design. And here's why I chose the word relevant. It's relevant to you. It's relevant to you and the world you live in. You are a gospel influence, unique and like no other. You have gifts, you have passions, you have capacities that uniquely prepare you to convey the gospel to your neighbors and friends that I don't have. The guys that came on Saturday and Friday night know that I'm a car person. I like cars and motorcycles I like high-performance things. I had the privilege of learning to fly early on. I'm a pilot. I like that stuff. Everybody doesn't like that stuff. 
On Saturdays, I travel from Santa Clarita, where I live, up to the Angeles Crest, where everybody who has anything cool and fast goes on a Saturday. There's a place called Newcomb's Ranch there where I'll sit, I'll buy a salad, I'll read my notes, and I'll drink in my favorite thing, cars and bikes. And because I, until recently, I wrecked it on Wednesday night, because I had a cool car, I could engage conversations with people who like what I like. And they'll talk to me, and they may never talk to you, because we have something in common. I ride motorcycles. People who ride motorcycles are like hunters. They find another hunter, they can talk. You're an art person. You're a music person. Your vocation connects to somebody else's vocation. You're a fisherman. That's relevant to you. Leverage your relevant reality as a tool to build bridges to people like you. I've had more conversations with motorcyclists and automobile guys than any other group. Because I relate. They relate to me. But I just know something they probably don't know. You know something somebody else doesn't know, and they're in your world. My wife is a horse person. I didn't know it when I married her. I didn't read the fine print. I didn't know what all that meant. Horses are like boats, black hole. Up here, it may not be. Actually, you may use boats to produce money, but where I come from, boats are a discretionary investment like horses. My wife loves horses. I love my wife. It's a big investment. But I'll tell you what I watch with her. She can have a conversation with a horse person. We had a polyamorphic couple. That's a couple that loves anybody they want to love whenever they want to love them. He trained my wife to drive horses little cart, little miniature horse. He's had a team of 12 horses in harness. Talented guy, lost as he can be. Graduate of the University of Oregon. Atheist. My wife had common ground with them. They love horses. They still do the Facebook thing. They're in Alabama. We're in California. They still connect. We gave them one of our miniature horses when we left Alabama. That relationship was more than just a training ground. It was a connecting ground. That's what can happen. You have that somewhere with somebody. Leverage your passion. God built you that way. Don't waste it. Things you like, some of you are are technical. There's groups for technical people. They're not just weird groups. I mean like they can actually talk and engage. Find businesses that you'll build a relationship. I got a lot of places I can eat in Santa Clarita and Los Angeles, but I eat at similar places often because I want to know the people who work there. Eric runs Kathy's Deli in Santa Clarita. Eric has two children. Eric's unsaved. Eric wants to move from his location to the new location. Hey, Harry, will you pray for me? Because I've been going in there long enough and often enough, and he used to have a really good deal. The All-American Breakfast, seven ninety-five, two pancakes, two eggs, hash browns. I'm hungry. Can you tell? Seven ninety-five. I told that to my fellowship group. Hey, this is a steal. I don't know how he's making any money, but until he figures it out, you ought to go buy this breakfast. I had a lot of folks come into that restaurant saying, hey, Harry sent me. If I walk in there today and Eric's there, the first thing that will happen is he'll greet me and he'll hug me. You can do that in Anchorage, Alaska. I don't know if you hug up here, but we don't hug in Los Angeles either, but he hugs me. We hug in the South. Everybody hugs everybody. But that's an indicator that if you want to intentionally, you have relevant design intentions to build relationships, not just to get a good deal. You'll get to know people, and if you call their name to God, and God opens their heart, you're present, available, and ready to be an agent of influence to God's glory. That's running to win. All right, I know I'm out of time. I see at 12 o'clock you're used to going home, and I get that because I was a pastor a long time. But normally I'd come back next week. Look at verse 27. I'll just make this statement because it's important to be made. Here's the fifth and final element. 
And this is relentless domination. You want a gospel-winning mentality employed in your life, there's relentless domination. Verse 27, I buffet, not buffet, I buffet. I'm good at the buffet, not so good at the buffet. Buffet is hupiazzo. Apiazzo is your eye, hupo over the eye. It was used of fighting. It'd be like cage fighting in our culture where guys get on the ground and a guy gets on top and he bangs him about the face, about the eyes, until he taps out. Paul says, I buffet my body. I make it my slave. I make my body tap out because my flesh is not in tune with this priority. It can actually disqualify me. Lest possibly, after I've preached to others, I myself should be adakamas, disqualified. Can't run, doesn't win the prize. You're the Lance Armstrong of cycling. You win seven Tour de France's, but you cheat. You're disqualified. All the records go away. All the valuables go away. You lose. Paul said, I could lose. And if Paul can lose, Harry can lose. If Harry can lose, you can lose. And we know a host of people that have disqualified themselves after great influence. My last encouragement today is avoid forfeiting gospel influence. Buffet your body. Make it your slave. Bring it under the submission of the word of God and the spirit of God. Run to win. It matters to them. And it clearly matters to him. Can you say amen? Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity to preach. Thank you for this church and its influence. And Lord, my prayer is that this church will be populated by the greater percentage of men and women who are absolutely committed to the rigorous commitment to say, you know what? I'm an agent of influence. And I'm going to invest my life, not spend it. I'm going to do all things for the sake of the Gospels to the end that I can be a participant, a fellow partaker in it. That's my prayer for them and for myself. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.